your wake-up call, pal. Go to work. Knock, knock, knock. Who's knocking at our door? Open wide. Step inside. It's 2024. A chance to restart, refresh, and reset. Clear the chips off the table. Place a new set of bets. Check the market dynamics. Take the economic pulse. What's the frequency, Kenneth? Give us the latest results. Are we getting a soft landing? Oh, is that last year's hope? GDP is going to slow. How are companies going to cope when margins get compressed and costs keep rising and workers want more? It's not surprising. With stocks at new highs and bonus season coming, give me a beat that slaps hard. Get those funky drummers drumming because it's about AI cash flow, and higher multiples. You want higher share prices? Better feed the bulls. It's an election year and things can get whack. And geopolitical tension is breathing down our back. At higher interest rates and a little disinflation, where's our American dream? The promise of the nation. Yeah, it's a new year, but it's shaped by the past. Get on board the express. Always true. Always fast. Welcome back and welcome aboard and welcome to 2024. We've been waiting for you. Stocks are entering the new year on a tear with the major equity markets on a nine-week winning streak. Thanks slowing inflation and the prospect of at least three interest rate cuts in 2024 for that momentum. The S&P 500 touched a new record high last week and finished 2023 up 24%. Remember, the S&P 500 was down close to 20% in 2022, so you can call last year a comeback or a reversion to the mean. The Dow finished up the year 13.7% as momentum spread across sectors, but it was the NASDAQ's year and did it ever deliver, rising more than 43% in 2023, its best year since 2000. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? We are, Maximus, we are. But just in case we're not, how about Bitcoin? Up 153% for the year. Risk, my fellow passengers, is back on the menu. As for stocks, you can thank the Magnificent Seven for a lot of those gains, up a collective 100% on the year, and that goes a very long way in those market cap weighted indexes. The best performing mega cap stocks of 2023, NVIDIA up 239%, Meta 198%, and Tesla 106%. Keep in mind, each of those stocks slumped by more than 50% in 2022. But there were huge gains in small and mid-cap stocks last year as well, including Affirm Holdings up 408%, Coinbase 391%, AppLovin, what is AppLovin, up 278%, Duolingo up 243%, Carvana 298%, and Abercrombie & Fitch up a staggering 293%. Tell me you had those stocks on your bingo card at the beginning of the year, and I'll let you trade my account in 2024. Among the worst performers of 2023, Enphase Energy down 43%, still though, one of the top performing stocks of the last 15 years. Drugmaker Moderna was down 45% as demand for its COVID vaccine basically disappeared. Same deal with Pfizer, down 44%, and discount retailer Dollar General, down 45%. That company experienced its first annual revenue decline since it went public in 1968. So, where do we go from here? Good news. Historical trends are pretty favorable right now if you're a stock investor, which leads us directly into our big three for the week. Number one, the S&P 500 has been higher for the past nine weeks in a row. After previous streaks like this, according to our pal Ryan Dietrich at the Carson Group, the market was higher a year later, 16 out of 18 times. Furthermore, when the S&P 500 posts gains of 10% or more in the months of November and December, it usually has a strong first quarter and a strong next 12 months, rising an average of 19.5% since we started measuring these things back in 1950. 
That's a pretty strong track record, but there are more than a few market watchers out there that don't think we're going to see those gains in 2024, and for the next five to 10 years for that matter. We're going to hear from Vanguard's chief global economist, Joe Davis, about why we need to curb our enthusiasm in just a few minutes. Number two, where does Wall Street think we'll be a year from now? As you might imagine, all over the map. According to FactSet, the median 2024 forecast for the S&P 500 is 5,058. The S&P 500 is sitting around 4,700 right now, so we're talking about an annualized gain of roughly 6% for the year. With long-term treasuries offering close to a 4% yield right now and banks still offering 5% or more on some CDs, money market funds, and high-yield savings accounts, investors have some big decisions to make about where to allocate this year. The most bullish forecast for 2024 comes from Deutsche Bank and Goldman Sachs, which both have a 5100 price target for the S&P 500. The most bearish forecast comes from JP Morgan, which has a 4200 price target for the benchmark index in 2024. And number three, where do we go from here? Here's a quick rundown of key themes that are likely to dominate the year in 2024. If 2023 was the year when rising interest rates threatened to bring a recession that never arrived and derail a stock market rally, investors are hoping that 2024 will be a year of stabilization and normalization. While that may come to pass, what is considered stable and normal has changed dramatically over the past few years, and investors' expectations need to change with it. U.S. economic growth is likely to slow as interest rates remain higher for longer and consumers rein in spending. Some economists think GDP will slow to as low as 1.3% this year as the lag effect of those 14 rate hikes in 2021 and 2022 settle in. The Fed's going to cut rates as many as three times, if not more, this year. Look for a federal fund rate in the 4.6% range by the end of the year. Corporate earnings are set to surge to a record level on a nominal basis, but balance sheets are going to be under pressure due to high rates. That could mean a rise in layoffs and a drop-off in consumer spending and potentially the recession we spent all of 2023 waiting for. The stock market should continue to rally if the Fed loosens monetary policy as advertised and bond yields stabilize. That's kind of what's been happening over the past two months, and a trend in motion tends to stay in motion until something knocks it off the rails. But beware of stretched valuations. With the S&P 500 now trading at its recovery highs, the trailing price-to-earnings ratio for the index is 22 times, and the forward P.E. ratio is 20 times. That's not cheap, and it puts the current equity risk premium at 3.9%, a level that will make cautious investors think twice about diving headlong back into stocks. It's also a presidential election year, and that usually brings a lot of headline volatility to the capital markets, but the stock market has been higher 19 out of the last 23 election years, or 83% of the time, according to Morgan Stanley. Furthermore, the results are pretty close no matter which party wins the Oval Office. When a Democrat was in office and a new Democrat or the same Democrat was elected, the total return for the year averaged 11%. When a Democrat was in office and a Republican was elected, the total return for the year averaged 12.9%. Kind of a wash. Bitcoin and other crypto assets, they should continue to rally as they gain more retail investor exposure through the potential approval of Bitcoin ETFs by the SEC. That could come as early as the first quarter. Plus, Bitcoin is having one of those halving events in late April, and that's usually a tailwind for prices. It should be another fascinating year, and I'm glad to be traveling through it with you. Let's get set up for the week ahead, the first of the year and a holiday shortened trading week due to the January 1st holiday. 
We're going to get updates on construction spending, manufacturing PMI numbers, and the release of the Fed minutes from the latest meeting on interest rates. That's all ancient history, and it's baked into the Fed's monetary policy cake recipe for this year. On Friday, we're going to get the non-farm payrolls report for the month of December, the jobs report. And don't be surprised to see some softness in those numbers. Economists are forecasting around 155,000 job gains last month and a slight tick higher in the unemployment rate to 3.8%. Average hourly earnings, which the Fed has been tracking closely for evidence of a slowdown in wage gains, are expected to have risen just 0.3% on an annual basis. Lower job gains and cooling wages are just what the Fed wants to see to show more evidence of a soft landing for the economy. We're also going to get the kickoff to earnings season this week, with widely held companies including Walgreens and Constellation Brands reporting. But the real earnings season starts to roll in next week and the following. We're also going to get monthly and quarterly auto delivery numbers from the big automakers, and Tesla's report will be very closely examined. Analysts expect Tesla to have delivered 1.82 million vehicles in 2023, with 473,000 of those coming in the fourth quarter, but the OG EV maker had to throw in some deep discounts to generate those sales. CEO Elon Musk has been promising 2 million vehicles to be delivered this year, so we'll see how 2023 netted out for Tesla. Any IPOs on the horizon? It's been a minute since the IPO market showed some signs of life, and while we aren't expecting any big new offerings anytime soon, keep an eye on companies including Fanatics, Shine, the fast fashion retailer, Kim Kardashian's Skims Apparel, and Panera Bread. Those could be on the launch pad to become publicly traded companies this year, especially if the market stays hot. Hey folks, it's Hunter Lewis, Editor-in-Chief of Food & Wine. This fall, we're launching the new Food & Wine Classic in Charleston with our partners at Southern Living and Travel and Leisure, and we want to see you there. This incredible three-day culinary experience will showcase the hospitality, food, drinks, and culture of one of our favorite cities in the country. Join us September 27th to 29th to learn more from iconic chefs, share a glass with innovative wine experts, and get to know Charleston with one-of-a-kind experiences curated by the experts at Food & Wine, Southern Living, and Travel and Leisure. Tickets are on sale now at foodandwine.com forward slash Charleston Classic. That's foodandwine.com forward slash Charleston Classic. See you down in Charleston. What if the last three years of economic dislocation have actually brought us to a more normal and reasonable state for the economy and our money? What if the past 10 years were actually an aberration, an unnatural environment where interest rates were below the rate of inflation, money was cheap? risk was the only option. What if the next few decades were more like the 300 years before the great financial crisis? What does that look like and what does it mean for our money? Vanguard, the giant money manager with over $7 trillion of our assets, believes that is what's happening and the implications are profound. Joe Davis is Vanguard's global chief economist and he is our very special guest on The Express to kick off 2024. So good to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. So in your 2024 outlook, which we will share in the show notes, folks, you call this new dynamic a return to sound money, which is actually good for investors. Explain what you mean by that. Sure, Kevin. I think you you just hit it on so well and poignantly in your introduction. You know, for many of us in the investing world, I think it's almost become used to the fact that interest rates were so low. People can remember zero interest rates, negative in parts of the world for such a long period of time since the global financial crisis. And almost so that that to some seemed normal. But we started to diagnose even before COVID, although it came out much more poignantly thereafter, that there were sands that were shifting, that were starting to point to 
interest rates settling at a higher level, certainly higher than what we saw before COVID. And that there was going to be some dislocations with that. But what that means, why, why investors should be cheering that is that we believe we have already entered a world that day to day, more often than not, interest rates will be higher than the rate of inflation. And that means that the real or inflation adjusted interest rate is positive, which has been the case on average, but decades can go by like we had this past decade where that doesn't happen. Why that's good is that's the power of compounding because the risk-free rate is the base interest rate and rate of return for every financial or private asset in the world. And so that's why it's very meaningful. It's also why a lot of people talk about it. Well, you say there's nothing new about this, but it may be new for generations of younger investors who grew up with ZERP, that zero interest rate policy that you allude to, but also central banks and a treasury that seemed to save the day whenever the economy unraveled. Is that the new normal going back to the way things were? Well, that, that's actually the debate in economic and policy circles. So for your listeners, right, what they'll hear in the news is you hear two effectively two camps, one, including central banks. They think that, that those long term interest rates will more likely than not go back to the old pre-COVID environment, which is why central banks like the Federal Reserve, I'll use them in particular, they think they're very restrictive because the world hasn't changed. Our research and some others would also concur that there has been some shifting of the sands, some aging of the population, as, as well as our fiscal deficits, that lead to a slightly higher interest rate. I think of that, the interest rate I'm speaking to, Caleb, as the speed limit on a road. Sometimes speed limits change, although in this case, we don't know what the speed limit is. No one posts it for us on the highway, but that's a debate going on in present circles. And our view is that that is the return to sound money, and that is a more positive environment for those making capital allocation decisions. So if it is, as you say, does the stock market look a little bit more expensive from an equity risk premium perspective? And we can explain to folks what that is, but we talk about it all the time on this show. And so if that's the case, what should long-term investors expect for the S&P 500 on an annual basis going out a decade or so? And I know you guys have done the projections. Specific to your question, we always do ranges because there's an uncertainty in the projections themselves. It's to mid to high single digits over the next 10 years. So that's lower than we've generally shown. If you want a specific number, I'll say roughly 6%. If you look a little bit farther out, they improve further. And why is there this tension? Because we've entered a period of return to sound money, that suggests all sequel higher returns because we have higher interest rates for bonds and for stocks. However, the very fact that interest rates are going to equate or settle on a slightly higher level means valuations are a little bit more expensive than they would normally be. So the S&P 500 was already expensive going into this year. It's become more expensive. So you have this push and pull. We have a higher ground floor for returns. But it's a little frothy on the valuation front. So that's code word for saying there's some downside risk to the markets in the near term. But if you're a long-term investor, the equity risk premium is slimmer than it has been for some time. But the risk-free rate is going to start to compound for all of us over the next 20 years. I'm going to go through Vanguard's 
updated 10-year annualized return projections across a variety of securities. So global bonds, you have somewhere between 4.7 and 5.7%. US bonds, somewhere between 4.8 and 5.8%. Global equities in the developed markets, this is interesting, somewhere between 7 and 9%. And then the emerging markets, 66 to 8.6%. US equities, 4.2 to 6.2%. Let's go through from the top down here. Global bonds, the 47 to 5.7%. What are you seeing there? What gives you that number range? And again, that's really coming from what I mentioned earlier, right? It's if you're following the markets, it's knowing what the Federal Reserve is setting the rates, but it's the rates in the bond market. The yields themselves are a pretty powerful indicator of future returns. We have other obviously analytics that drive these returns as well, but that's why our expected returns for all portfolios have gone up over a longer period of time. We were assuming we were going to exit this pre-COVID world, by the way. Our research pointed to this, and we've disclosed this to the academic community. We have tracks, and we did not anticipate COVID, so you've got to throw that aside. But the trend has followed course. So what we were expecting is starting to happen, which is bond returns with some underperformance for a time, we're going to reset to somewhat higher levels. That's why you have 4 and 5% expected returns on bonds. Remember your episodes three or four years ago, Caleb, they were 1%, 2%. So that's that return of sound money. The equities international continue to have higher expected returns because of the valuation disconnect in pretty much markets outside of anything U.S. growth or technology have somewhat higher expected future returns than technology and growth themselves. It's in its own stratosphere from the valuation perspective. Right. And, but it's, it's strictly that, right? It's the valuation perspective. That's really it. It's not a growth story. There's modest currency differentials. I would not hang my hat. Like we have a very good handle on that. There's higher dividend yields overseas, which again is another, it's another way to say your valuation comp- component. And again, these are over 10 years. We have not shown historically we're very good at the near term in terms of trying to pick US versus non US investments. That's why we focus on the 10 years. You give us 10 years and our confidence level goes way up in terms of our projection. A lot of our listeners are long-term investors. We are in it for the marathon. So knowing that 10-year and out perspective is super important. So much of investing and so much of what's fed to us and guilty as charged is what's happening today, market up, market down, next week, next month. But looking out 10 years, folks, it's great to have these ranges in your mind to help you set up your plan. So bonds are back and it's been a minute. That's very good news for fixed income investors. Why the recovery? Do you, why do you think the recovery will be so strong in the bond market? And what does that ultimately mean for people, especially folks that do like the 60-40 and like that more conservative approach as they get older? Well, as we said, you know, the 60-40 took a little bit of heat last year and the year before, and some were questioning the validity. Listen, it clearly underperformed, but that's been in history. And, and there will be a, a time in the future you get an unexpected inflation surprise. Many investments go down that year or that day. But over the long period of time, 60-40 has a natural defense mechanism built in that does not eradicate short-term losses. And that is the rise in interest rates themselves, which you spoke about. So bonds are back. And when bonds are back, because interest rates are back, that means the 60-40 is back. Now, we have some overvaluation in the U.S. And so when you zoom out and for your portfolio, it means that regardless of what the Federal Reserve does next year, I think the Federal Reserve in this near-term commentary, and listen, I have to speak on this as an expert quote unquote, expert all the time, it gets too much attention. The Federal Reserve does actually not influence this return to sound money that I'm talking about. 
if anything, they're going to try to fight it because they think the world hasn't changed. And with all due respect, I think they will ultimately end up revising their thinking. So regardless of the Fed cuts rates next year, probably positive for fixed income because you're going to have a flight to quality rally. It also says we're probably heading for a recession. So it's going to be a mixed bag for corporates and for the equities. But I'm talking about the speed limit on the road. The Federal Reserve just drives down the road. They don't dictate the shape of the road. And that's what we're talking about with the return of some money. Yeah, well, let's get into your outlook for the year 2024. You got 0.5% economic growth year over year when looking at Van- from Vanguard's perspective. Why so slow? Well, it's two things. One is interest rates really do start to bite. Um, the soft landing narrative out there, listen, I hope it's true. It's a little naive because what it implies, and I'm being a little unfair, but what it implies is that interest rates don't matter. That's not true. There has been a delayed effect to the economy. It was stronger than we anticipated this year. And some of those offsets, as I call them, we talk about in our report, some of them fade. Some of the fiscal spending we saw from the CHIPS Act and some of the green energy and so forth has been a significant boost to growth, stronger than we would expect. It's stronger than the CBO expected. Some of the consumer excess savings start to dwindle and we'll have a continued slowing in the economy. So I'm not, I am not wishing ill on the US economy. It will downshift likely, but that'll bring inflation into that last mile, as we call it, closer to, to bear. I think the risks are that the Federal Reserve cuts too prematurely in 2024. And we can get into that, but I, that's actually my greatest non-consensus worry. It may sound good that they're cutting preemptively, but I worry about inflation coming back in that scenario. Yeah, I do want to get into the wild cards, but let's jump to that in a second. I want to get to some of these other projections because they're fascinating. 4.8% on an unemployment rate. That's a full basis point higher than where we are today at around 3.7%. Is this the lag effect of all those rate hikes finally bleeding their way into the economy and the fact that companies are now going to be under gross profit margin pressure, and they're going to find ways to cut to keep that share price up. Is that where this comes from? It's half of it. The other half is just, and this has been actually good news last year, but last year's good news becomes a modest headwind in 2024. And that is workers returning more to the labor force, 55 and older. We don't know exactly why, but that's good news longer term. You want more workers available that raises growth and so forth. But that means then that you really have to create jobs at the same rate you were doing this year to keep the unemployment rate at the same level. So that's unlikely. It's more likely it starts to rise modestly. Now, some will call that a soft landing. Caleb, I'm just saying, by the record, you rise, uh, the unemployment rate rises to even 4.5%. That's a recession. I'm not wishing it. I'm just saying that is one. And so people can hide behind that it's really a softest landing. It's like, okay, whatever. You can call it what it want. The MBR will ultimately define it a recession. And you're looking at core inflation at 2.3%, pretty close to the Fed's target. So it may have won the inflation battle through all the rate hikes. But it is going to have these consequences that you alluded to. What are the other knock-on consequences of inflation coming down to that Fed's target range? I think that's that's ultimately really good, right? I mean, ideally, you want to have your cake, you need it too, which means inflation come down. And you could also have not only the Federal are not raising rates further, but having being able to cut and avoid, you know, a rise in unemployment, I mean, which is ideal, right? You hit both of your objectives. I just think there's lag effects in the system. And it's going to be a little bit tougher to achieve in 2024. The risk is if they cut prematurely, 
to try to anticipate and, and nail that soft landing. I was just saying they're just, it's like pulling gymnastics. Is it possible to stick the landing? Yes, but it's doing so with a big fan in your face. It's just more difficult. So I wish them the best. I just think the odds are stacked against against us. All right, let's talk about some of the wild cards that you haven't already mentioned. You did mention one, so we can come back to it. But what are the wild cards out there that could throw your forecasts off or make things potentially worse than expected? Well, that will definitely happen. The matter is like how much off of our baseline will we go? It's a humbling business, but we, we're very data-driven, Caleb, as you can imagine, Vanguard is. We look at where the risk and distribution is. So I can tell you this, the financial markets are pricing in with almost certainty the soft landing. So that in and of itself tells us that risk will manifest next year from the market pricing perspective. Now, there's two risks that we particularly monitor. One is the generic one, which is the downdraft that there was a interest rates do matter. There was just a, you know, there was a delayed response from some of the offsets last year. I don't think that has to be drastically negative news for everyone because I don't anticipate it's deep. The, the China situation is the second risk. They are starting to contend with a debt overhang, much like the US did in 2008. China is different in certain ways, but we put our hand on that diagnostic and dynamic several years ago and remain of the view that they do not have a quick turnaround in front of them. So that'll be a headwind for, for many developed markets. And then the other wild card, or I'll call really out of consensus wild card, one is we pull off the soft landing, but it's completely by mistake. And that is we're actually in a productivity boom from AI. We just don't know it yet. It's too premature. I am saying that is, I think that's a one in 100 chance. So that's a very low probability, but it's possible. The more likely risk is that we have a Federal Reserve that's trying to stick the landing, trying to get down in front of it. They see inflation coming down. They cut rates aggressively with the labor market still tight. That happened in 1967. So if anyone wants to read history over the over over the 2024 period, I keep look coming back to 67. The curve is inverted. We avoided a recession. Everyone cheered. The labor market never weakened enough. Inflation came back a year later and the Fed cut rates during that period. Within a year, they were raising rates aggressively and the recession was worse. So my counsel to policymakers is let's just be careful that we're not repeating the 1967 mistake. That's the non-consensus risk that I see uh, in 2024. Do you have a favorite obscure indicator that just gives you a clue into the economy or even not? It doesn't even have to be the U.S. economy that as an economist, you're partial to. Well, we look at some which we actually publish, you know, as Vanguard, we have a lot of access to data, right, just from our own client base. So the good news is that investors are investing in the market. The thing we look at also job hiring rates, so we can impute that from our own 401k records. So the BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, published what's called job openings. If they're really following the markets, they'll know it's called the JOLT survey, job opening labor turnover survey. One of our favorites. But we have our own sample. In fact, by some measures, our sample is broader than the BLS because we have the entire, you know, we have all retirement 401k plans. So when someone joins a 401k plan as an employer, they get enrolled now with auto enroll into a 401k plan. That's a job creation. So we can look at that momentum that has been softening for some time. It gave us the fact that we we're in a down thrust in, in labor market, but we're looking at that to corroborate evidence because it says we're going to continue to weaken, but Others are saying, no, the labor market's still tight. So that's my favorite indicator, something we've developed over the past 12, 18 months. And we, and we disclose it you know, as a public service. 
All right, Joe, you know we're a website built on our finance, econ, and investing terms. You're an economist of the highest order. I got to know, what is Joe Davis's favorite economic or investing term? Uh, I'd say, can I give you two because they're related terms? We'll take a two for one. Absolutely. They're, they're adjectives. So it's secular or structural. Why I say that is, and I'm part of this conversation in the industry and so forth, you know, but there's so much focus on the cyclical. What's going to happen in the next six or 12 months? What's just as hard to answer, and that's important, Federal Reserve, they're going to cut rates in June, yada, yada, yada. What is more important is secular trends. So secular is code word for trends or structural is code word for enduring trends or change. You hear sometimes structural change. That is, and we know an asset allocation, right? It determines 90% of your return. Structural and secular are the 90% analog to economics. The business cycle gets 90% of the attention. It affects about 10% of the trend. Conversely, secular is 90% of the trend, but it gets about 10% of the focus. So they're slow moving variables, which means they can sneak up on us. So more to come, but that's the area that we also will. So we care about the short term cycle. We also care about, hey, what's the future of work with AI? How will globalization impact the, the patterns of inflation over the next 10 or 15 years? Yeah, I don't know about the next month, but the next 10 or 15 years. This is what led us to what some call our star and the rate that led us to the conclusion of the return of sound money, which, by the way, would have been very helpful to have done in 2005 rather than in 2019. But that, that we try to put as much mind share to that as the short-term risks in the economy as well. So hopefully that's helpful. That secular and structural are things that uh, we spend a lot of time trying to get a better handle on. Yeah, and they are so important. A lot of this packed in to your outlook for 2024 and all the great research you and your team do over at Vanguard. Joe Davis, Vanguard's global chief economist. Thanks so much for joining The Express. We appreciate you. Uh, thanks for having me. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week's term is brought to you by the month of January because it's the January barometer, naturally. According to the world's greatest investing education website, the January barometer is a market hypothesis stating that returns in January predict those for the rest of the year. It's yet another one of those seasonal market phenomena coined by Yale Hirsch of the Stock Traders Almanac. We talked to his son, Jeff, just last fall. The January barometer has held true roughly 75% of the time since 1945 when January experienced market gains. Notable exceptions followed extended periods of market growth. On the other hand, a down January has not been a reliable predictor of an overall weak year. And the positive correlation plays out. In only two years since 1945, the market fell 10% or more after a positive January, and both of those followed big gains the prior year. That was 1966 and 2001. In recent years, the January barometer has had pretty mixed results. In 2022, the S&P 500 declined more than 5% in January and ended the year with a 20% loss. In 2021, the S&P 500 declined by 1.1% in January, but went on to gain just under 27% for the year. Last year, 2023, January started with a bang with the S&P rising more than 6% for the month. Take these seasonal sentiment trends for what they're worth, but pay more attention to the general trends in the market, no matter which month it is. We're going to let the late, great Judy Garland take us out this week and into the new year. Here she is in 1963, 60 years ago, with this message of kindness and hope for the new year. We have a whole new year ahead of us. 
And wouldn't it be wonderful if, if we could all be a little more gentle with each other and a little more loving, have a little more empathy, and maybe next year at this time, we'd like each other a little bit more. Thanks for joining us this weekend. Special thanks to Vanguard's Joe Davis for climbing aboard the Express. We'll link to Vanguard's 2024 outlook and its 5-10 to 10 year outlook in the show notes, along with all the other reports we cited on this week's episode, including our own outlook for 2024. Check those out wherever you ride the Express, and let's make 2024 amazing together. Stay smart, stay kind, and stay invested. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line.